Welcome back. And we're recording. How are we doing this? Good. We got the uh, Cactus Explorer beside us. Uh, how about you introduce yourself? Hi, so my name's Stefan and uh, I'm an Australian who's living in Chile and uh, I work in ecotourism here, but I'm also independently researching cacti and habitat. So uh, back to the question I asked you earlier, like what got you so into cactuses? Because Thomas, could you pull up his, uh, his Instagram feed? I guess. No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but no, what, what got you like so into uh, cactuses? Yeah, so my grandparents had uh, a pretty large landscape garden at their property and I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid and, and my grandfather actually had a, a small cactus collection. So I spent some time uh, looking after that and then when he, he passed on, I actually inherited the, the, the collection and my family really noticed my interest in cacti specifically. So they bought me some cactus encyclopedias and I'd save uh, articles from gardening magazines and stuff like that. And yeah, so I started identifying them and getting more plants. And, and as the years went by, I became more and more interested in their habitats and where they actually uh, grew in situ. So I started going on some trips to the Americas and eventually became completely obsessed with um, the cacti of Chile, especially, but um, also in neighboring countries like Peru and Argentina. And yeah, so uh, about, I guess, four years ago, I, I made an Instagram account with them and, and a Facebook page and just started uploading pictures. And I didn't realize how kind of international or, or how big of a niche it really was. Um, and before I knew it, I had people asking if I did tours and stuff like that. So uh, I just started, I decided to start facilitating ecotourism, not just for cacti, but uh, just general nature photography and nature tourism in general, but uh, most of the tours that I've done have been with other um, cactus fanatics, just like myself. <laughs> so it's been an interesting journey. Yeah. So cactus fanatic is something I didn't really know about <laughs> until talking to you and uh, <laughs> finding your page. Uh, yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some cool pictures, by the way. Um, but yeah, you were saying about uh, ecotourism. Could you explain that a little bit? Like what that actually is? Yeah, so basically, um, it's just having in mind, uh, well, showing people, because a lot of these plants are actually uh, endangered or threatened in habitat from various factors. Um, some being like mining or expansion of civilization and climate change and all that kind of thing. So the idea is to go to these habitats, but doing it in a way that doesn't uh, impact them negatively, for example. Um, so when we go to the habitat, we don't take plants with us or we don't take seeds from the plants or, or things like that. And um, yeah, it's, it's meant to be an educational thing as well. So people can learn about the interaction between the plants and the environment. So um, yeah. yeah, always sticking to walking trails and driving tracks and stuff like that, because sometimes people who come to habitat for the first time we're not too sure you know how to kind of um navigate their way around the environment without impacting it in a in a negative way yeah, yeah. um when i when i used to think about uh, deserts uh, which normally are where cactuses are um i would think that it would be basically be nothing living there but just from looking at sort of pictures you have and uh documentaries and so on 
they support a lot of diversity and yeah. very unique animals and plants. Yeah, yeah. So deserts are have a really interesting sort of ecology. I mean, you know, it's it's got a lot of diversity. I mean, not as much as um, you know, I guess more tropical or subtropical climates. With they don't have as a great density of plants, but um, but it's certainly diverse and and interesting. You know, I mean, a lot of well, the Atacama Desert's a great example, uh, but it happens in deserts in Africa and stuff as well. Um, but they can go through years like multi annual years of droughts and then all of a sudden there'll be a huge rain and all the seeds that are laying around in the desert will just pop up so you get heaps of annual wildflowers and stuff like that coming to life so you know sometimes the life is not always there it's just on like kind of rare rain events um, and stuff like that and a lot of bulbs uh, that live underground and even a lot of cacti actually live underground and go dormant for, for years on end and then when the rain comes they um, you know hydrate and yeah yeah come above the ground so it's pretty incredible hmm. yeah i see i see the picture you had there i'm gonna keep referencing your, your instagram because it's pretty cool and there was there was a cactus that just looked like it was part of the mud but it had just been like hydrated and was starting to come back up yeah yeah exactly so a lot of um cacti they just grow in these really i mean a desert is already kind of a, a niche kind of environment but they have really specific needs some of them and they've really adapted to to really specific soil types or different geological situations so yeah it's really it's really fascinating and a lot of the plants are actually really really difficult to find so if you're not you know exactly sure on what you're looking for or where you're going you would just drive past and not even know that they were there because they're so small. Yeah. Uh, um, actually, yeah, you, you have one here that's like the size of like a two euro coin. Yeah. It's absolutely tiny. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like you, some of them, you really, really have to research where they are and, and spend a lot of time really carefully searching. So, you know, that's one thing that I like about the desert. There's heaps of subtle kind of, um, you know, life um, surviving there that you that, that most people sort of um, you know wouldn't be aware of. So, I guess that's what I'm trying to promote too in my photography and the work that I'm doing through uh, social media and and the tours is mm. um, yeah yeah people you know they they wouldn't think about protecting or conserving certain areas of the desert because they just don't know that those plants are even there to begin with. Yeah, yeah, especially with like at least what we learn with uh, deserts, you just hear like they're spreading at the moment, like desertification. Right, and, right, uh, yeah. But we've been taught like in school that you want to suppress that as much as possible, stop them from growing, even like just get rid of them altogether, especially with the Sahara Desert or the Gobi Desert. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, deserts are expanding and climate change uh, is a thing. And I, I guess that's why they've become popular in landscape gardens, especially. Uh, because they don't need as well they're, they're much more drought tolerant than other than other a lot of other plants so but the question for irish listeners at the moment is can they grow in ireland uh you I was asking you about a prickly pear you said you'd have a chance with us i i think you would even in ireland i mean i haven't been i'm not that familiar with the uh with the climate that you've got but a lot of it's, cacti it, really it rains a lot uh, long rough. periods of uh, rain. Mm, yeah. uh, there's, there's a lot of rain, but it never really freezes. It never really freezes here. 
It's never really busier yeah, than Brazil. Barely. Yeah. For the entire year, it'll probably never Maybe be in busier. April now we'll get a bit of snow. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of cacti would actually tolerate that kind of climate. So, um, you know, you get a lot of plants that are growing in, in areas of even cacti that get a lot of rainfall um, in some areas of the United States because they grow all the way up to Canada and all the way down into Patagonia and southern Chile yeah. and Argentina. I don't think of Canada um, when I think of cactuses. Yeah, you yeah, don't. You don't. Um, yeah, but like the, the southern part of Canada, kind of in the center, um, it's kind of you know, it gets just hot enough in the summer, I guess, to sort of stimulate flowering and growth and mm, does yeah. um, get a little bit, have a bit of a drought period too. But yeah, a lot of them are really tolerant to a lot of water because where I live in Australia, our winters are really wet uh, and cold and I can get away with growing heaps of stuff outside. So yeah, it's something that people don't usually associate, you know, um, with cacti. They think they only grow in a desert, but really they grow in all kinds of different environments. Uh, so you're an Aussie, uh, yeah. and at the, at the moment you're not in Australia. Australia's gone gone through a bit of a hard hard shower of COVID lockdowns. Uh, we, we've had a few people on uh, recently from Australia, and okay. like they, they can't even leave. Um, like, do you still have family down there going through the lockdown situation? Yeah, so I've actually just recently um, come back to Chile. I've only been back here for a few weeks, um, huh. so. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I went to Mexico in at the end of February. And so, yeah, basically I was in Mexico when the pandemic hit and my flights back to Chile got cancelled. So I had to go back to Australia. So I've spent the last six or seven months there. Um, and I live near Melbourne in Victoria. So that was one of the, the hard hit states um, with COVID. Yeah, so, one of my yeah. friends is in there at the moment and he... He's very confused about the whole lockdown situation. He's not very happy with it, but has to go through it. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Australia doesn't have huge numbers like some other countries, but their goal is to basically completely eliminate it like New Zealand had or did or had for a bit there. Yeah. Um, so I think their goals are really kind of ambitious. So, um yeah, it can be a bit confusing to some people why they're having such uh, extreme lockdowns like stage four, where they can, you know, only have very limited, um, you know, permission to go outside and go shopping and socialise and do things. So, yeah. yeah, it's really hard and it's drawn out for, you know, a long, a long time, really. Mm. I mean, yeah, six months I was there, it felt like a year, you know, because, <laughs> yeah, one just felt like it was going so slowly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh... Thankfully, we haven't been as bad in Ireland, but we're getting a bit worse. We had this point where we were at like 20 cases, fucking five cases, zero cases, <laughs> and then shot up to 200 cases. Yeah. And they're sending kids back to school, which everyone isn't in favor of. Yeah. They took them out of school with 25 cases, sent them back in with 200. So, yeah. not good. Yeah, no, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, it's yeah, still not great here in Chile either, especially in the city uh, where I live. It's still on full lockdown at the moment, so. Oh man, <laughs> it's tough. It's tough, oh, Jesus. Yeah, it's 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 sort of a psychological challenge, you know. I think for a lot of people, especially when they're so used to, um, you know, just being able to do whatever you want, essentially. But, yeah. Um, yeah, we're never. Yeah. 
We'll never appreciate freedom so much until after this. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's something that even, I guess, our parents haven't experienced either. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, there's been a few generations in between certain events like this. You know, it's not the first time something like this has happened throughout history, but it's the first time, you know, intergenerationally uh, from the people that we know. Mm. Yeah. Plus, there's the whole factor of, like, you know what's happening everywhere. Whereas, you know, maybe like 100 years ago, maybe something like that, you wouldn't have. Like, I know exactly what the cases are in America today are. Same with Australia. I know what the people are doing. It's weird. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And, like, the world has never been so globalized before either, which is probably one of the reasons why it's spread so internationally, you know, because, like, a couple hundred years ago, a virus would have been a lot more restricted, you know, because humans are like the vector, we're the ones that transport it. So, if you know, not mm. everyone's not jumping on planes daily, you know, cross continent, cross continental international travel, like the virus has just got limited uh, ways that it can make its way across the globe. But now, you know, with the globalized world, how many planes are, you know, flying across continents every day? Like, so it's no no wonder that it just went bang and kind of... Isn't, isn't that what happened with uh, New Zealand? Like, they just kind of stopped letting anyone else in. And then they got down to zero. Then they let people in, and it went back up. Right. Yeah, so basically that's kind of what happened with Australia. Um, we had pretty low case numbers right in the beginning, but then there was some complications with, uh, yeah, people arriving from overseas and not having proper quarantine. Um practices in place and yeah all of a sudden you know you're getting over 500 new cases a day in just one state so which is rough that's yeah. that's, that's so bad yeah <laughs> so, yeah yeah it went from like you know i don't know 20 or something a day to like yeah you know over 500 so Horrible. yeah just goes to show but uh you know it's the it's a cookie cookie we've been given so yeah, we just have to, um, yeah, wait it out, essentially. Yeah. Um, I know, I know that the, the Sputnik V uh, vaccine is doing okay. The Russian one. Is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I see there was like a Russian trial and a UK trial. So, mm. you know, yeah, the vaccine is obviously um, the solution, but there are like a one-off vaccine or, a, you know, an annual vaccine if it's... Yeah. If it, happens to you know keep changing but it's going to be yeah it's going to be a little while i think until things go back to what we consider normal mm. yeah no i get that i think they're on the third stage of testing and uh, so far so good well that's what they say like but the thing is like is that people who aren't essential won't get that for a year and a half as well because it's going to go to the essential workers first that vaccine mm. do you know what i mean like yeah, uh, uh, as it should I mean, you know, like those guys are amazing. I mean, I assume it's going to be everyone in the world saying, Russia, can I have this many? Now, 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 highest bidder kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I think whoever gets it's... back to normality first kind of wins. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to take a lot to, um, you know, to get everyone vaccinated. It's going to take quite a long, it's going to be a long process, I think, yeah. you know. And, you know, access to it's one thing, but also production, you know, they're going to have to produce how many uh, billion, you know, vaccine shots. Yeah, no, it's 
Plenty. <laughs> Sorry. No, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but, uh, fair play to them for getting it done first, you know? Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, going back to uh, cactus and uh, conservation efforts for them, uh, is that what you're involved in? Yeah, so it's part of what I'm doing um, is generating awareness, but I'm, I'm currently working on some projects to, um, uh, I think, you know, mining has really impacted uh, habitat here in Chile, for example, and, and in, internationally. Um, so what I'm going to be trying to do is actually, uh, mining companies are wanting to sort of clean their image a little bit now. So they're wanting to kind of undo a little bit of the damage that they've done uh, because I've got a, bit of a bad reputation from from just you know going in and destroying um not just even habitat but even cultural stuff you know there's plenty of um you know ancient sites that have been destroyed by mining activities and stuff like that so they're wanting to sort of you know clean it up a little bit um but yeah like in the desert here for example i mean a lot of water actually arrives from the Andes, you know, because it snows there and then it melts and it comes down in rivers, which makes its way all, all the way across Chile and goes to the, the ocean. So a lot of um, plants and even cacti that live along rivers that rely on that water, mining companies have actually taken it, you know, so they stopped the water source right at the Andes, which stops, you know, the water flowing across a few hundred kilometers of desert regions. So that's really impacted um, habitats greatly. So you know, just making sure they actually restore that once they leave is one thing because the mines come in, block the water, make a dam, and then they leave, but they don't, um, you know, yeah. get the water, open the water back up to, you know, go back into the natural river where it was before. So, yeah, I'm, I'm working on some more ideas to, to try and get their attention and see what other uh, projects that, you know, or restoration that they might be able to do. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, obviously, like power to you. Uh, we're, we're definitely in favor of, uh, you know, fixing environments we have left. You know, we've, we've fucked so many up. Uh, you know, we've got to do our part in fixing them back up. Yeah, and like a lot of environments can um, regenerate, you know, they just need to be given a chance to, to yeah. do so. Um, and it can, it will take quite a long time, you know, I mean, but I'm sure that if water was restored to some of the areas in the desert here where it's been blocked, um, you know, habitat would regenerate definitely, yeah. you know, it might take a few decades or even a century, but, but it will happen, you know, and I think that's one thing that people struggle with too, is they want to see immediate change. Um, yeah. doesn't happen very fast. It doesn't, you know, and so, yeah, people can kind of um, lose interest pretty quick in, unless they're seeing, you know, change happen within a year or a couple of years. So. Even when they, they plant, like, a lot, lot of trees, like, you've probably seen that thing pretty recently where they planted, what was it, 20 million trees? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, like, you can go and see these places where they planted the trees, but realistically, it's going to take a long, long time for you to see them get much taller than yourself. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not immediate. And speaking of deforestation, that's a big problem in Ireland. We're one of Europe's most deforested uh, countries because our, uh, uh, our neighbour, when they were colonising the world, used up our trees. So. Mm. Like, okay. yeah. Just I think about like 50 million trees, George. Like, do you know how many like, trees Americans use for Christmas? Oh, God, how many? 
15 million Christmas trees. So Shut all they did was, was plant the uh, five. next year's trees. Yeah, well, <laughs> pretty much. That's just that's America rough. as well, like, you know? Like, that's... that's yeah. You, you use a fake one. That's what we do. Same. Or, or grow your own one. May as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's just incredible the consumerism that kind of, you know, exploits nature, you know, just on on so many different levels, you know. It's it's pretty overwhelming. But it's just a thing of we're only thinking about that stuff now. Back in the day, we didn't have the, the privilege <laughs> of thinking like that. Yeah. You know? Uh, the guys from up north wanted to go kill you, so you had to make us get the stick, make the spear, uh, <laughs> you know, cut out a tree to make uh, houses just so you could survive the winter. But we're, we're past all that stuff now. Uh, well, yeah. most, most of us are. Yeah, so, well, so. yeah, especially in a lot of developed countries. But um, yeah, it's, it's tough when you go to a developing country. Um, especially in some countries in South America or in Africa. And you can just really see it's a story of survival, you know. Um, uh, about five years ago, I took a trip to Madagascar, which is one of the, the poorest countries in the world. I think it ranks as like the 10th poorest country globally. And, you know, they've got... Place. Yeah, like, you know, a huge percentage of their flora and fauna is endemic, you know, just to that island. And it's a lot of it's been uh, destroyed, unfortunately. But, you know, you go there and you, you sort of, you don't really walk a day in the shoes of the people there, but you get to see it, you know, um, what, what the life is like. And, and yeah, they're just not considering long-term effects no. of the island. It's all about short-term survival yeah. strategies, like cutting down, you know, <laughs> hundred year old, uh, you know, palm trees or even mango trees and stuff. And, you yeah. know, from the outside looking in, you're like, shit, this is catastrophic. But like for the people living there, it's like, you know, well, we've got to eat and keep warm, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Uh, just, just with that there, you know, we, we talked before about how like humans killing off the different plants and animals have effect on the, uh, I guess the, uh, the world, like, uh, I know the, the largest uh, bird that ever lived used to live in Madagascar, the elephant bird. Right. Uh, that's that's yeah. gone. You know, like they used yeah. to have uh, mammoths up in Siberia and they'd compress the soil and then, you know, it wouldn't release gases as easily. And then they're not alive anymore, so it happens more easily. So, yeah. you know, killing off these things, kind of a bad thing. Because once they're gone, they're gone. It's not cool, bro. Don't do it. <laughs> that's it yeah once once they're gone they are gone you know and i've only more recently become aware of like some of the major herbivores in south america that have become extinct within the last couple hundred years um and it's been directly linked to human activity and um, climate change so but yeah. mostly human activity actually and introduction of other invasive animals um for example that have um yeah, it extincted these, these, you know, ancient herbivores, you know, within the space of like, you know, 20 or 50 years, they're just gone. Like, you know? Yeah. Um, but even when you go back down to like tribal people, like in the 1400s, they used to be, uh, the Moas still wandering around in New Zealand. And then within like a couple of generations of people being there, they're gone. Yeah. And uh, you just, you just love if someone like New Zealand was never found until modern times and, it was all this like diversity of like humans were never here and they just had their own, uh, I guess, safe space. 
but uh, you, you'd wish you could bring all these things back. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I guess, yeah, that's that's part of what I'm trying to do um, in my work as well as just generate awareness because a lot of people haven't heard of a lot of the plants that I'm, you know, um, publishing photos of and, and talking about. So, yeah, it's just about documenting them while they're still here and generating as much awareness as you can. Um, mm. So people are wanting to, to, to protect them, you know, and and learn about them. Yeah. Mm. Uh, for people who want to like do their part for conservation efforts, like what, what advice do you give or what do you say they could do on like a daily basis that can help? Yeah. So it's all about just grassroots stuff about changing, you know, your routines and what you choose to buy and stuff like that. I mean, geez, it's, that's a really in-depth question because there's so many things that people can do and different decisions that people can make, you know, um, <sighs> It's hard. I mean, a big one is trying to choose, you know, um, uh, energy companies that, that use uh, renewable sources of energy and not fossil fuels, for example. Um, but then that's also sometimes not even accessible in certain countries. But, you know, just making a change like that can, can make a huge impact, you know, and choosing what kind of products you buy and having awareness of where those products come from, like, you know, the palm oil thing was a huge one, you know, trying to not buy products that use palm oil or, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. But yeah, that is a, that's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big question. Uh, sorry to pounce it on you, but uh, like yeah. you, you, are, you are involved in that stuff. So I just thought I'd ask. It's a heavy one, but there's some big things to be aware of is just, you know, um, I'm just trying to think there's, I mean, there's heaps of stuff. Don't use plastic right, straws. You know. Yeah. Plastic, you know, yeah. One use plastic, you know, and one use, you know, like foam containers, plastic bottles, and all that kind of thing. If, you know, just you what about those, uh, those paper straws? Because I've heard they're supposed to be like worse or something. I don't know. Like, yeah, so I remember when I, I was, I, I remember when I was a kid in Australia, like you know, every, a lot of things were paper bags in the supermarkets. They were giving out paper bags, and then I remember, like you know, in the nineties, there was this huge change and they're like no we we want to use less paper because we're killing all the trees so we're going to use plastic and there was this big you know um you know public uh service announcement that you know yeah plastic's the way to go because it's not impacting trees and then now we're kind of having this big backpedal yeah. where we're trying to cut out plastic and we're introducing paper stuff again it's like well it's like it's like just don't use the straw why even get out straws it's like drink it like you always do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. It's just um, like eliminate the straw or, you know, I don't know, yeah. use use things more than once, you know, because that's the whole thing. It's just this single use stuff is, is a killer. It's kind of down to like how fast they break down. <clears throat> like if I threw mm. this book outside versus if I threw this plastic bottle outside, my reusable one, you know, the book would be gone a lot faster than the plastic. You know, the book could be gone in five years. If it was, if it was True, yeah. outside, this thing could be here for a thousand years. Yeah. So. But yeah, it's also like the resources that we use to create the product in the first yeah. place um, as well. So, and you know, the, the environmental cost associated with producing it, like, so a lot of the, um, you know, the plants that are producing um, or the factories that are producing plastic, you know, are emitting all these really toxic chemicals into the environment and stuff like that too. So there's, you know, yeah, it's just this huge, big, um, sort of compounding chain reaction. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I think personally, if you want to do a bit to help the environment, you should grow your own food. Not all of it, obviously. If you, if you want to grow your own potatoes, you want to grow your own carrots, whatever. Just grow a bit of food, you know. Uh, better than going out to, to the shops to get it. You're saving money as well, so like, why not? Mm, big time, yeah. I'm a big advocate for that as well. And just, yeah, getting rainwater tanks, you know, and you yeah, using here. your own rainwater, for example. That's actually illegal in Ireland. Oh, really? Yeah, big, big ordeal like a few years ago that because of the way they, they've done it, that technically the Irish government owns the rain. What? See, yeah. I mean, you know, in Chile, it's, it's, it's nuts too. Water's actually privatised here. I think it's the only country in the world that has privatised the water. Privatized. Yeah, yeah. It's it sounds terrifying. Like McDonald's saying whether or not you can have water. <laughs> yeah. You got your but water licence for you? Or... <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Having rights to the rain is something else. I mean, in Australia, you know, you can just install a, uh, as many rainwater to, or there might be a cap on it, but you can install a rainwater tank in your property, you know, and yeah, you can quite easily purify yourself at home. And so then you're using your own water. You're not going out and buying, you know, you know, one liter, 20 liter bottles of it in plastic. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely yeah. a weird one where like a government or, uh, a company owns your ring. And that's very, yeah. very weird. Well, they want to sell it to you. You know, they don't want you to have anything that you can get for free. For free. <laughs> so, I suppose, yeah. Some uh, rings, sir. <laughs> <laughs> don't mind if I do. <laughs> You're paying for the rain next. Yeah. No, it's, it's like it's like it's like it's like the government coming to your house. And you have like a bucket outside your house, and they rain the shit out of you. <laughs> Yeah, because when I told Thomas about this, that the government technically owns the rain, it's not even technically, they just, they just do. Um, like, if he, he's like, what if you leave a bucket outside? Like, a SWAT team's going to break into your house. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> he's got uh, a bucket. Yeah. Nope. It's ridiculous. You know, this is, it is just so ridiculous. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, people, you know, or generations ago from 200 years ago, if they knew what we were doing now and how things are being exploited, you know, it's, you know, it's ludicrous. It's, it's just, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. In a few generations from now, how people look back on us and, you know, uh, analyze how we, we, you know, or our governments operated, you know. I wonder, will, will they have less or more freedom? Hopefully more. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's it's complicated, but um, yeah. you know, like obviously a big thing as well, which you know people try and tiptoe around is trying to um, you know, reduce the expansion or you know, the uh, <laughs> the growth of humanity, um, because you know obviously there's more demand for stuff, you know that's just more demand that's getting placed on on natural resources. So Look, we'll go to Mars with Elon Musk and the boys and. You can, you can do whatever there because there's nothing native there as far as we know but uh here preserve the stuff here move move on elsewhere <laughs> uh have you seen the movie the martian yes yes, we, we yes. together it's great isn't it yeah, it's yeah that's a good one i watched that again recently yeah it's the same that guy must be like the, the king of like horticultures right i mean no <laughs> <laughs> you're like i want to be that guy you know yeah yeah <laughs> 
Hort- the above the oh shit whatever sorry <laughs> i thing, worked really. in horticulture and it sucks the work is back back breaking yeah yeah it's pretty hard yeah mm. but uh I suppose back to cactus <laughs> See, I, I warned you about the, the tangents you know they're gonna happen that's um, right. So I've seen in a lot of things, uh, cactus is using, being used as like a survival food. Uh, but I've seen that go like both ways, where you, like they grab like a cactus and they go into like a lucid trip, or they go get a cactus <laughs> and they're fine. Um, what's your story with that? Do you ever like try to use these cactuses for anything? Mm, uh, no, that's it's sort of like um, it goes a bit against, I guess, what I'm what I'm trying to do is like just you know, generate a general appreciation for them in their environment. Even when there's abundance and their evolution, yeah. Um, like certain ones, like the the prickly pear that you mentioned before, have been really introduced big time in in, in horticulture and agriculture in um, a lot of different countries, especially in Latin America, but even parts of Asia and uh, Africa. They're a big thing in the but like you know they can be a really useful food source definitely um you know when they're grown uh you know grown from seed or from cuttings in those in those kind of situations but what i'm really against is actually taking them from their um their native habitat and and being used for that kind of thing like yeah there's a big issue with um for example peyote cactus uh being being used for um you know neo shamanism and stuff like that people taking them from habitat and you know they basically boil them up into a, a tea and drink it because it's they're really high in mescaline and um you know hallucinogenic so uh yeah there was a huge problem with um taking them from habitat because they take a long time to grow like one could take you know 30 40 years to grow to the size needed to you know get a decent kick out of it so <laughs> yeah uh, there's other ways to get your high. Don't go out stealing cactuses. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. You're a clown. Uh, I mean, people were literally going and, you know, pretty much eradicating uh, and extincting certain subpopulations from certain yeah. areas, you know? Um, like, I'm okay with it if you're like a native people. Like, I know like in, you know, in the United States, like Native Americans have the rights to still use these hallucinogenic things because it's part well, of their culture. But, yeah, uh, well, that's the other thing that comes into it is native americans who use it they have a certain way that they do it so that what they actually do is they actually cut the the top of the cactus off like the the photosynthetic part of the cortex but they leave the the taproot in the ground and that actually reshoots new heads and regenerates so they're not yeah. but what these neo shamans are doing are actually extracting the entire plant so they're taking the root and all and when then when they you know, have a truckload of shipment, then they, they deliver that to wherever it's going. And then they just cut the top off and throw the root in the bin. It's like, you know, so, so the, the, they're not actually doing it in, or not like um, harvesting it in the same way as native Americans were, were taught to, you know? Yeah. Um, like so that's the other problem. If you're native power to you, like honest to God power to you. If you're a guy like me or you're a guy like Thomas or a guy like your man beside me, <laughs> just no. Have a bit of cop on. Yeah, and that's the that's the whole thing is that where I refer to as like neo shamanism is it's not like true shamanism well, with the natives and they have a practice. You know, they actually live in harmony with the plants. You know, they don't 
you know, they they know that by taking the entire thing out of the ground, they're going to completely yeah. kill it. You know, so mm-hmm. they that they they really just use a part of it, but leave it to regenerate. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. Or or even if you're going to do it, do it like it's just been explained here. Like, just take the top. Yeah, leave, leave exactly. the roots. Don't take the whole thing. You know, like if people if people must do it, like I'm not condoning that. You know. Uh, anyone who's not a native uh, uh, person to to do it at all, but like you know, if they do do it, just cut the top off, you know, and leave the leave the root uh, in the yeah. ground. Like if there's no stopping you, just do it the right way. Yeah, yeah, but that's the whole thing. Is like you know, there's no care taken, you know, because um, I've been to certain habitats and seen the end result, and it's just complete destruction. You know, <laughs> it's just like, yeah. I was gonna say, it looks like you've like had to deal with this a lot because you feel very strongly about it. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a whole other um, um, topic uh, about basically uh, the black market around selling, um, you know, really endangered or rare slow-growing cacti uh, from Mexico, United States. Chile is a big one too, because a lot of cacti here take literally centuries to get to a, you know, quite a large size where a collector... Um, would find it an attractive specimen plant, you know, and um, what was a really big problem is actually even in cacti and succulent societies, these, these plants were prized, you know, and really like trophies, you know, from the desert. So people would come to a competition, you know, especially where there's money involved, they can win uh, prizes and stuff like that. And so, you know, they're displaying this plant from habitat and winning a competition and all of a sudden photos are taken of it. They're on social media and then, they're really expensive because they take so long to mature. So, you know, people are like buying time essentially, you know, it's not like they can just grow one of these things in a few years in their backyard. It's literally taking decades or centuries to mature. So that's where an inflated price comes into, comes into the, the market, you know? So yeah, basically cacti being ripped from habitat and sold on the black market to collectors. Um, which is also a huge problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds ridiculous. I mean, people, people have heard of um, endangered animal poaching, you know, but plant poaching is, is a huge I had, problem. I tried to explain this to my, my parents. Uh, we were all sitting in the kitchen. I was like, okay, I got to go. I got to talk to this guy. And then they were like, oh, oh what about? And uh, I was explaining like, because I've seen a post you did before about uh, poaching with, cactuses and like yeah. rare endangered cactuses and i was like okay well this, this is what the guy is kind of like about and what, what he's involved with i did, didn't know it was a problem until i just seen this so it should be interesting to talk about yeah yeah so it's not just happening with cacti but other um desert plants or plants in general that are that are rare or endangered you know some of them are actually critically endangered and um you know sure like you know i've actually oh because I'm, i've made a lot of publicity about it and you know I've, I've literally had hundreds and hundreds of messages from people you know most people are all for it preserving it but then you get some people contacting you who are actually involved in poaching in the market and all they have um essentially nurseries where they have a black market um you know area that which they're, they're dealing in and they get quite defensive about the topic and um you know, they try and justify and rationalize why they're doing it, you know, and you start to get this kind of what, what, dynamic. What's the, thing. what's the argument that they're, that they're saving the plants? 
so they're like oh you know they're gonna die anyway from from climate change and uh you know human destruction activity so you know they kind of feel like they're saving the plants you know and the same exactly the same mentality happens with animal poaching or all kinds of other stuff which i might go into like much darker stuff but it's you know it's classic kind of you know, it's, it's actually illegal to take these plants from habit. It's a, it's a criminal behavior. And so you get the same kind of criminal uh, mind psychology coming into it with the justification and rationalization why they're, why they're doing it, you know? Um, yeah, th this sounds like the plot of Tiger King. Like, <laughs> like, no, like seriously, that, that's, all, that's what his excuse was. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, big, it's exactly the same uh, psychology around it, you know? Um, yeah, you, you know, dealing endangered species basically now, and it's, it's this this argument is valid in some cases for something that's living in its habitat fine leave it like what, what are you doing you know remember that thing like the the, the blue macaw or something there's only two left from so yeah but they went extinct thanks to people right but, like when you get like the last two of them or you get like a breeding pair you try to get them going uh, I can understand that. Like, I like pandas are critically endangered. So if you have them all together in breeding and then bringing them back uh, their habitat, that makes sense. But if they're just being like handed around as exotic plants or exotic uh, animals, it's not really good. Because you know, you know, not in Tiger King, what they said was, if you release these tigers back out, they wouldn't know what to do. They ha they haven't like learned what like right, they would have if they were in the habitat. They're not conditioned. They've kind of like lost that. But you know, there, there would definitely be some sort of um, innate, you know, um, survival instincts in them where I'm sure they would, you know, be able to 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 be put back into their, their habitat or environment. You know, that stuff wouldn't just disappear over a generation or two. I'm sure there would be some changes, but you know, yeah. But see, like they're they're, they're learning they're what they can the and cannot do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and if if they're if they've no experience hunting, and then mm. you put put them in their environment, they're they're fucked. If there's, if there's not even anything to teach yeah. them, yeah, because mm. at least when you're like say a young cub, you tried to catch a squirrel. I know there's no squirrels where they live, but it says try try to catch a squirrel. You didn't catch it. Mm. Okay, next time you learn from that, you got it the next time, and you upscale like blah blah blah. Uh, they don't don't have right. that experience or those life skills. You know, they're not going to survive. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I know that actually makes a lot of sense. It's like, you know, if you, you know, like, like a human with a baby, you know, unless it's taught to, to do things like, you know, there's, there's an innate ability, you know, or a part of the brain dedicated to learning to talk a language or speak a language, I should say. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter what language it is, you know, um, but it still needs, the baby still needs to be taught to speak a language, whether it's English or Spanish or yeah exactly whatever so it's kind of got all the tools there it needs but you know unless it's actually shown or taught how to do it in the correct way yeah it's it probably not gonna not gonna happen it's just kind of like if you, if you drop me into uh the plains of africa uh you know i wouldn't really know what to do <laughs> yeah to yeah do. yeah if, that's right. if you took if you took like someone who lives there anyway and for generations have learned what to do they thrive yep yeah yeah, like, you know, yeah, if you took a human and, and isolated it without talking to other people, it's not going to just wake up one day and start speaking English, is it? You know, it's going to need to yeah. learn and um, be taught how to, how, to, how to do that or to, you know, hunt like, you know, yeah, there's just multiple, multiple 
things that we learn to do, isn't it? I suppose this is a nature versus nurture argument. Yeah. Oh man, it's it's deep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thomas, Thomas, you're fairly quiet today. What's the crack? Do you ever hear that thing of like the two twins? And like if one they're like separated at birth, one goes moves in with a farmer, the other yeah. goes moves in with like the CEO or something. They meet like there's like it's it's nature versus nurture. It's like they're com- two completely different people, but like they have yeah. the same eye color, <clears throat> you know. <laughs> yeah, genetically they're they're you know basically identical, but yeah, like yeah. you know different exposure to different um, environments. I don't know. I guess they they call it like epigenetics or something. So like you know different expression of genes, you know in response to different kind of environmental or you know pressures. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it sounds. I thought you were going to tell the story of like the two lads are separate at birth. They lived in like a couple of towns over from each other and they lived for like 30 or something years. Uh, they married, they, they, they were divorced. They, they both got divorced to a woman with the same name. Uh, and the marriage were the same at the time. And then they got married again uh, with the woman with the same name. Uh, and then had like what, three kids each. And they all gave them the same names and they lived similar lives. They just, we're nearly identical in every single way. Hmm. We, we, we were told that in a religion class before. No, man, I don't remember that. Mr. Heinz told that. Did he? Yeah. Told, told, you know, don't make it too obvious. Who said it now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's a fan. I'm sure he is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting, you know. Um, oh. Yeah, I, I find the natural world fascinating. I mean, like, you know, I've, I've been interested in plants since I was a kid, but I, I studied health science at uni, you know, so I got a bit into, uh, you know, anatomy, physiology and psychology and stuff like that. And hmm. Yeah, I, I do remember that uh, twin uh, story coming up as well, actually. Yeah. Oh. Okay, I'm, I'm not talking complete nonsense. I'm pretty yeah. sure you so you said you did a bit of psychology have you been like assessing us throughout this podcast you know <laughs> you know <laughs> this no, Stuart guy's all right no. but this thomas guy's fucking lunatic you know <laughs> no yeah. i don't I, I don't think anyone who studies psychology is, is essentially the, the gatekeeper of psychology or has any kind <laughs> of um you know upper hand in analyzing or assessing people you know i think seriously a lot of people i talk to a psychologist i try to act like as normal as humanly possible (laughs) and they're just like yo just give me a second i'm gonna go call my friend at the mental ward they might like to speak to you for a moment (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) thomas you're sounding fairly mental today uh more so mental than usual you okay buddy uh emotionally (laughs) no but anyway (laughs) i think psychology is really interesting but i i can never in uh in mental health i don't think i did some placements um in that kind of stuff and it's pretty heavy you know i think you have to be a have a certain kind of um disconnect to, to work in those kind of environments you know to to see it from more of like an analytical perspective because you know i found myself getting way too um em- empathetic on the same levels as the person having the experience it was it was too heavy for me <laughs> you know mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I would take that stuff home with me, you know. I wouldn't be able to just leave oh. it at the door when I walked out of the, the office. Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, you like, must take a lot. 
to, to not think about us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it takes a certain type of archetype of person, I think, to work in, in those kind of positions. Huge respect, massive respect, you know, really essential field. Um, and then, like, they have to separate that from their home life, which I presume must be very hard to do. Because, like, if yeah. someone tells you something really traumatic, that's going to stick with you for maybe, yeah. you know, a, a bit anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be there for a while. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, you know, and sometimes it can even, you know, spark up things that, that have been, you know, you can associate with your own personal trauma or things that happen in life, you know, and that can kind of, yeah, aggravate your own, you know, your own mental state sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess working with cactus is more relaxing. Uh, <laughs> so working with plants like, is much easier than working with people. I can tell you that. It's like you yeah. don't have to. Go, you'd like you go home and all you see is plants. <laughs> <laughs> much, more, much more therapeutic. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what part of Chile are you from, by the way? I don't think we talked about that. Yes, I live in the Antofagasta region, in the city of Antofagasta, uh, in the north. So, yeah, it's about, um, I don't know, 1,200 kilometers north of Santiago, which is the capital of, of Chile. So, this area is really famous because it's, it's right in the middle of the Atacama Desert, which is the driest desert on the planet, actually. Um, or the driest non-polar desert, I should say. Um, so yeah, it's really, really interesting, the ecology here and uh, the dynamic, the interaction between the plants and the environment, because basically every day we get really heavy fog coming in off the Pacific Ocean and you can get the, the same phenomena happening in California. You know, San Francisco is really famous for having fog um, sweeping, sweeping through the Bay Area. So same kind of influence, but, but yeah, basically it only rains here once every three to five years on average. Have you experienced rain there before? Sorry, have I experienced it? Yeah, but just a little bit. Um, not really a proper, proper rain event. You have to be pretty lucky to, to be, you know, caught right in the middle of one. Um, but it can actually pour down pretty hard when it does <laughs> rain. But it's just that it's really infrequent. But mm. basically, the a lot of plants that live in the Atacama Desert uh, well, they basically all grow along the coastline in the first couple of kilometers of coast. So, yeah, they're surviving off the fog, the mist that comes in from the ocean. Just, um, you know, it condensates and provides just enough moisture for survival. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got that. Basically. So, yeah, this is, this is where I live. Um, so, it's the opposite of Ireland. Pretty much. So, it was looking <laughs> to get rainfall. Well, we must be fucking millionaires. <laughs> yeah yeah it's really you know water is a huge it's a really scarce resource here and it's you know highly valuable and yeah you don't realize how much you take it for granted until you come and, and live in a place like this so yeah and also like unlike here like we or like i know for i have i grow roses and stuff in my garden but like i kind of really rely on rainfall just to like i like unless there's like sunny for like four or five days straight i usually won't go out and like water them kind of just like yeah. rely on the rainfall to take care of them for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the, the thing of watering your plants doesn't really apply here as much. Mm. Yeah, it's raining all the time. Pretty much. Yeah, even through summer. Uh, I wouldn't even say we have a summer, man. It, it, like, it might be sunny for like a week. It's like July is okay and the rest yeah. is like miserable. It snows in yeah, April okay. every year. 
Yeah, and it makes no sense because like December is like lukewarm. Yeah. I mean, I went sunbathing for Christmas last year. No, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> no. Uh, um, I, I'd really like to visit Ireland, actually. I've, I've never been. Um, Do you have any heritage? Uh, my dad's side of the family was Scottish, so um, I guess mm. that's the closest sort of link that I would have. But That's fair. You know what? We'll accept it. They're pretty cool, Scots. It's good enough, <laughs> it's good enough for us. Scots are pretty more similar than you think, just because of our language, our kind of history yeah. of them. Especially the Highlander Scots, they're a lot more similar to us than they are to the English, because okay. we kind of share a language, mm. kind of, but not really, but basically. Right. It's like how there's like different derivatives of French. You have like Canadian French, and then you have like French French. That's about how big the difference is: Canadian French and French, like Scottish and Irish. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a good way to, you know, a good analogy for it. Yeah, I'd really like to to visit sometime. I've met so many Irish people, even in Australia. Irish love to travel. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's more of us outside of here than there is in here. I'd believe that. I'd believe that because I, I traveled quite a bit and worked interstate in Australia and every single hostel or, or city that I went to, uh, you know, hands down, there would, be, there would be an Irish person, you know. And if you didn't meet one on the first day, you know, you'd just be like waiting, you know, until you, until you, until one arrived because they, they will, <laughs> they were yeah. everywhere. But it was great though. I mean, like, you know, really, I love the, the social nature of the, the culture, you know, and I think they fit in really well to the Australian culture. It's quite similar the way we socialize. So well, they used to send Irish uh, criminals to Australia. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I know. Well, we <laughs> we have a bit of a history with that. Um, yeah, our country was pretty much <laughs> built on <laughs> built by uh, convicts. <laughs> so, yeah, hard workers. So you know, Australia developed very quickly. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, anyway, this this has been great. Uh, do you have any message to finish up on? Um, just get outside, you know, start uh, start start doing some tracks or walks, and just um, exploring uh, whatever native uh, endemic places are left around where you live, you know, and uh, becoming a bit more familiar with the the nature and stuff that lives there. I know that, you know, cacti drew my attention and my interest to the Americas, you know, but when I, when I go back to Australia now, I've noticed myself um, taking a lot more time to appreciate our native flora and fauna and, and, uh, and the interactions there. So yeah, I'd encourage anyone just to get outside and, you know, get in touch with nature as much as they can, as cliche as that sounds. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. Like it's a lovely day in Ireland today. So I suppose it'd be a great day for a walk. I think actually the rest of my family's gone for a walk, so I may join them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. It's um, of course. Yeah, it's been, been cool. Um, if people want to check you out and they want to keep up with you, where can they find you? Yeah. So uh, on Instagram and Facebook, if you just put in Cactus Explorer or the Cactus Explorer, you'll you'll find me on there. I've got a website, cactusexplorer.com. Uh, has a bit more information about what I do. Um, yeah, you can and, find, me, find me on there. Any chance of YouTube coming anytime soon? Actually, yes. That is something that I've got in the pipeline. Um, 
yeah, that's one of my projects actually for the rest of this year is to is to make a YouTube channel and start yeah making some some videos. Uh, yeah, because photos are great, but videos are probably you know they give a lot more context. So yeah, especially if you can like inform people about what they're looking at. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, that's uh yeah one of one of my main goals for this year. Um, I'll do some writing and stuff like that as well, which I'm going to be posting links to on my website soon. But yeah, I'll be definitely having a, a YouTube channel, which will just be Cactus Explorer. Well, uh, when it's out, uh, we'll probably post a thing or two about it, just so people can go find it. Definitely, yeah. I'll let you know when I when I get it up and running. Yeah. So thanks, man, for getting on. Uh, thanks everyone, everyone for listening. So uh, if you haven't already, make sure to like, comment, subscribe. Maybe tell your grandma about the podcast and have a great day. Thank you.